Uh, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Good to see you. Greetings to our online community. We're glad you're tuning in, and let me be the, among the first to wish you a happy New Year's Eve. I love the rhythm of getting to this time of the year where we kind of rip off the, the, the page of the old year and look the new year in the face, right? And, and for some of us, that's a time of reflection, right, to, to look back and take an inventory as well as looking forward and thinking and planning and praying about how we want the new year to go. And the, the Friday before Christmas, I had something uh, as rare as an eclipse happen in my home. I was the only one there for 36 hours. <laughs> Everybody else was gone. And I love that because I'm kind of an extroverted introvert and I needed some quiet time, some alone time. And at the same time, I knew I needed rest, I knew I wanted rest, and I also was sobered by the responsibility of being home alone for 36 hours and wanting to intentionally steward that time. And so before I left my office that Thursday night, I grabbed a couple of old journals and I began on Friday morning by entering into a time of prayer and then reading through my old journals, going back to 2018 and 2019. And this is what became incredibly clear to me. God is at work. Because I read and I was reminded of all the things that concerned me, that I was begging God to change in my life, that I was wanting him to do in my kids, in my family, in my church life. And now, looking back five years later, I could see him at work in amazing ways. Right? And it's our privilege then to join him in his work. We can't always see it. So I want you to realize that the things that you're praying today, you may not see answers to today or tomorrow. It might take some time. But we need to trust that God is at work and that he has a plan for each one of us. So if you've been here this fall, you know that we just completed preaching our way through the Gospel of Matthew. It was a two-year journey, but we finally got there. And we spent all of Advent in the Great Commission, right? Those final verses of Matthew's gospel. Week one, we, we remembered that Jesus has all authority. Week two, in light of Jesus having all authority, we are to go make disciples of all nations. And that's a sobering call. And one that's, in, in fact, humanly impossible. Week three, we heard Jesus promise, I am with you all the days, even to the end of the age. And we were comforted by that promise and reminded that God has a plan to use every one of you and every one of me as he continues his commitment to build his church on this earth until the day that Jesus Christ returns. And our privilege is to look around and to see where he's at work and to join him in that work. Our mission of, as a church is to equip people to become more like Jesus which means we want to equip you to reach out and help other people become more like Jesus as well, right? Because God has a plan to use every one of us to complete the Great Commission. And in light of that, I have two things I want to call to your attention this morning. The first one I want to call to your attention is Alpha. If you've been around ABC for a year or so, you know that a year ago, no, last fall, we launched Alpha. Oh, a year ago we launched Alpha. Spring of 2023. And if you're not familiar with Alpha, Alpha is a, a safe space where people can have honest and open conversations about life's biggest questions. 
So if you or people that you know are asking the big questions of, is there even a God? And if he does exist, how can I know him? How can I trust him? That sort of thing. So if you're wrestling with some of life's biggest questions, Alpha is the place for you to, in a small group setting, wrestle with these questions. Everyone is invited and no questions are off limits. And here's our vision. Our vision is that each one of you would prayerfully consider who in your family or who in your co-working space or network of relationships is asking big questions like this. Who can you move toward and invite and who could you come and attend Alpha with so that we have some spirit-filled believers around the table as well? And in order to help you understand who to invite, how to invite them, and to what you're inviting them into, the Alpha team is putting together an information night a week from today. 3 p.m. in room one of the student center, there'll be an Alpha information night where you can come and for two hours experience a small taste of Alpha, where you'll get to understand how, it's, how it works. We, we, we meet around round tables over food fellowship. Excellent food. Some of you are supplying food for that, and I just want to say thank you for that ministry because table fellowship is key and central to Alpha. And it's in that context of table fellowship and some excellent teaching that these questions, life's biggest questions, begin to be addressed. So one of the easiest ways that you can be involved in playing your role in the completion of the Great Commission is by figuring out who God would have you invite to Alpha and just show up and attend. And a good next step for you in discerning how to answer those questions is coming a week from today, 3 p.m. in the Student Center and experiencing the Alpha Information Night. These Alpha groups are going to start two weeks from today. We have a Sunday morning group that will meet at 10.30 in room one of the Student Center. And we have a Monday night group that will meet at 6.30 on Monday nights. These groups meet for a series of about 11 weeks. And we start with the, the deep apologetic questions, as does, does God exist? How can we know he exists? How can we come to trust him? And, it, and in the middle, we have a day away where we have, the last two times we've run Alpha, we have rented out a portion of Granite Ridge Christian Camp over by Creston, and we pulled away there for a Saturday. And we've hunkered down, and we've enjoyed good food and good fellowship, and three clear teachings on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And then we come back and there are three or four weeks of content after that. So that's what Alpha looks like. And one way that you can be involved in the Great Commission is by prayerfully discerning who to invite and to attend with them. The second thing I want you to be aware of is I recognize that the people that we're reaching out to here in our local communities, people that don't yet know Jesus, are living in a world that's frustrating. And we want to equip you to reach them by teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. When's the last time you read the book of Ecclesiastes? Probably not real frequently, right? And I just want you to know that I didn't vote for this preaching series. <laughs> Here's a disclaimer. Um, Jeff pulled together a work group of our ministry leaders, and, and we said, what are you listening to? What do you hear the people wrestling with in men's ministry, in women's ministry, in adult ministries? What do our people need to hear in order to be better equipped to help grow in Christ themselves and help other people become more like Jesus? 
And the consensus of the group was, our people need to go through the book of Ecclesiastes. So here we go. (laughs) And you'll understand this after I read through the first 11 verses. But this is a book that it can be hard to read. And it feels kind of pessimistic. And yet it is chock full of rich, rich truth for us. So let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you haven't turned there lately, just grab your Bible, rip it open in the middle. I just opened to Jeremiah. That means I need to go left. Because Ecclesiastes comes after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah. So if you find one of those books, it's, it's in there. And let's pause, let's pray, and then I will read the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes, and we'll see what God has to teach us today. Father, we come to you now in Jesus' name, knowing that you have inspired every word of your word. Every word that we have in the Bible has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, preserved by the Holy Spirit, and we trust that as we read it out loud today and as we preach our way through it over the next six weeks, that, Lord, you will tune our ears to your voice and you will speak into our lives things that we need to hear, things that we need to be reminded of, things that help us make sense of life on this side of glory. So, Lord, would you have your way in our midst now as we open and do an overview of this book. Have your way in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading Ecclesiastes 1, beginning at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. But what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the latter things yet to be among those who come after. Ah! (laughs) Can you hear his frustration? He is not satisfied with what living life under the sun is like for him. And as we read our way through this, as I read that, I have a bunch of questions that come to my mind, and those become the four points on on your outline. Who is the preacher? What does he mean by vanity? Why is he so frustrated? And in light of all of that, how is he going to tell us to live? So that's, that's our outline today. Let's look at verse 1 and ask this question, who is this preacher? Verse 1 again says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So right there we recognize that this author is not speaking in the first person. He's speaking in the third person about someone called a preacher who is 
a son of David, a descendant of David, and he is king in Jerusalem. So with those clues, who do you think it is? Yeah, it kind of sounds like Solomon, doesn't it? Yeah, there's additional evidence. Verse 16 of chapter 1. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Still sound like Solomon? Yeah. Listen to what uh, 1 Kings 4 has to say about him. This is verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and of all the wisdom of Egypt. Skipping down to verse 34. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. So Solomon, wise man. According to 1 Kings, he is the wisest man who has walked this earth, right? So it sounds like it's probably Solomon. And if you continue to read on through chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, we hear the author say this, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. He goes on and he says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Still kind of sounds like Solomon, right? We know Solomon was a man who, according to 1 Kings 11, had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Does it sound like he turned himself away from anything that pleased his eyes? No. He depth. He dove into the depth of pleasure and, might I say, even pain, if you have a thousand wives. So, no offense, ladies. <laughs> no, no offense. But, yeah, this is sounding like Solomon. Until you keep reading. Continuing on in verse 3, it says, And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, for, for his heart... It was not true to his God as the heart of his father, David, was. So, here we see that these many wives from many different nations caused his heart to turn away from the one true God to turn after their gods. And I ask the question, does he now sound like one who's qualified to come to the conclusions that the author of Ecclesiastes is going to come to? I'm not sure. So we continue to wrestle for more evidence. And uh, another piece of evidence that may indicate that it may not be Solomon is verse 16 of chapter 1 and verse 9 of chapter 2. This one says that he surpassed all who were before him in Jerusalem. And if it was Solomon, there's only one king before him in Jerusalem, and that's his dad, King David. So it would seem odd for him to say, I surpassed all who were before me over Jerusalem if it was only his dad. So there's a little bit of evidence that it may not be Solomon. And in order to understand who this preacher is, then we need to understand the Hebrew word kohelet. Kohelet is a Hebrew word that in the English translation is translated here ESV preacher. And it means collector, like a collector of sentences, collector of ideas. It's like a deep investigator, maybe an investigative reporter of sorts. The ESV, the King James, and the New American Standard all translate Kohelet as preacher. The NIV translates it as teacher. 
And it's, it's an idea of someone being a speaker in an assembly. So the church, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. It's an assembly of God's people. And a preacher is one who speaks in the assembly of God's people. So there's one argument for uh, a faithful translation of Kohelet being preacher. But Tim Keller says he's more like a philosophy professor, somebody who makes deep observations of the world, this side of glory, and then draws these questions to such deep conclusions that they're disturbing. So maybe he's like a professor of philosophy. The word Kohelet is only used in the book of Ecclesiastes, so we can't look at other Old Testament books to, cheat, to find deeper understanding of it. And in order to understand the book of Ecclesiastes, we need to recognize that it seems like rather than Kohelet being the author himself, it seems like there's another author who is quoting Kohelet and teaching us through the collection of Kohelet's ideas. Uh, Ecclesiastes 1.1 is spoken in the third person, as I recognized, right? The words of the preacher. He's not saying these are my words. And at the end of the book, again, the author seems to provide some summary statements speaking of this preacher in third person again. And we read from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So that summary statement makes me think that Keller's view of Kohelet as being a philosophy professor who has uh, it's, who's searched widely for words of truth and delight, he's, he's collected and, and, and held together those that have cut, made the grade, and he's recorded them for the education of his readers, including us today. So the next question is, is, is if Kohelet is the great collector of sentences who's being quoted in the book of Ecclesiastes, and Kohelet may or may not be Solomon, then who's the author? And there are three options traditionally. The first option is that the author himself is Solomon, and for the reasons that I've previously listed, that may or may not be true. One more piece of evidence against this is that the style of Hebrew used in the book of Ecclesiastes lends itself to a date much later than the 10th century BC, which was when Solomon would have written it if he did. So that's another piece of evidence that it may not be Solomon. So if it's not Solomon, who is it? There's two more options. Another Davidic king, somebody else in the line of David who came generations later who is now looking back and making these observations, or alternatively, it could just be someone anonymous who is taking on a Solomon-like persona. Regardless, the author brings us to this conclusion in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 11, when he says, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. God. So whoever the author is, it may be Solomon, it may not. Whoever Kohelet is, it may be Solomon, it may be not. These words have been given by the one good shepherd, our God. Therefore, they can be trusted even if we don't ultimately know who penned them. God himself is the one who inspired them and who has preserved them. So that brings us to the messy answer to the question, who is this preacher? We don't really know. It may or may not be Solomon. 
Second question, what does he mean by this word vanity? Verse 2, he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity of vanities. Five times he uses that one word in just this one verse. And when I hear that word vain, I can't help but think of that 1972 song by Carly Simon. You're so vain. You probably think this song is about you, right? Some of you are old enough to remember that song. <laughs> and that song, right, the, the first verse is, you walked into the party like you're walking onto a yacht. So this guy that she is singing about is apparently full of himself. He thinks about himself a lot, and he, off, he thinks a lot about himself. And that's the definition of vain for that song. I'll just tell you, that's not helpful. I just draw that for a conclusion. <laughs> That's what comes to my mind, and that definition of vain is not what's helpful. So I'm, I'm not a real fan of translating the word hevel as vain. But that's what we need. If we're going to understand this book, we need to understand what the author means when he uses the word hevel. It's used five times in verse 2. It's used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the meaning of the word hevel is something like a vapor, something like a breath. Uh, if you take it in the more abstract, it's something that's worthless, like an enigma, something very mysterious, something that's hard to wrap your mind around, something that's puzzling, something that's very hard to understand. And as we read our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, he's saying it's the apparent fruitlessness of all human enterprise under the sun is hevel. It's frustrating. It's confusing. It's hard to get your hands wrapped around. Now this word, hevel, is used in other places in the Old Testament. We find it in Psalm 144, verse 4. It says, man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. So there that word hevel is translated as breath. Again, this thing that you can feel, but you can't necessarily get your hands wrapped around or comprehend. It's also used in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? There the word hevel is translated as worthlessness or worthless. So the understanding of what the preacher is saying when he says vanity of vanities is something like vapor of vapors, uh, mystery of mysteries, puzzle of puzzles. Everything in life is apparently vanishing. So what causes him to come to such a dim and dark conclusion? In other words, why is the preacher so frustrated? And we find this that continues on, verse 3 and beyond. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And you can hear the frustration in his voice. You can hear the angst. You can hear him asking this question. Life is hard. What profit can I count on from all my labor? He just wants to know, is there a return that I can bank on in this life? Why is he so frustrated? There are three reasons that he's frustrated as I have perused my way through the book of Ecclesiastes. There's probably more, but I'm going to summarize them in three. The first reason he's frustrated is because the toil invested to gain knowledge pays terrible dividends. So the work that you apply to, to gain education, knowledge, wisdom pays terrible dividends. Listen to what he says in verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, 
and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So if you want more pain and grief in your life, go ahead and gain more knowledge. <laughs> That's what he's saying. And we value gaining knowledge, right? That's why we educate our children, because generally speaking, the, the better educated you are, the more you know about life, the better job you will get, the better time you will have in life on this earth. And yet he's saying there's a point of diminishing returns. The toil that you invest in gaining knowledge pays you back in grief and pays you back in pain. And those are some pretty terrible dividends. If you don't believe me, just turn on the news, scroll through the feeds, look through the apps, right? It's a pretty dark place. And all of a sudden, you begin to feel the anxiety welling up. And your mental health begins to erode. Stress and burnout become words that are the norm for the culture today. And doctors and psychologists are now helping us realize that we were not designed to thrive in this information at our fingertips age. Our smartphones are eroding our mental health because the more knowledge we gain, the more pain and the more frustration we expose ourselves to. This is why doing a media fast can be a really healthy thing for your mental health. So there's a, big, a, a nugget of wisdom from the book of Ecclesiastes for us today. Uh, a media fast can be a really healthy step toward better mental health because we're not designed to live carrying the burdens of the world at the tip of our fingertips. So that's one reason that the preacher is so frustrated because the toil we invest to gain knowledge only brings back pain. It pays terrible dividends. Secondly, he's frustrated because the toil invested to gain material things is a net loss. So if we invest ourselves in amassing cash, wealth, or any kind of material things, he's saying it's a net loss. In chapter 2, verse 21, he says, Sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. And that's frustrating, right? You work your tail off all life long, 40 years, 50 years, however long it is. You work your tail off and you end up giving it to somebody who didn't work for it, right? That's what inheritances are all about. If you've been on the receiving end of it, you know that flavor. If you are planning for it, you understand the pain and the agony that comes when you think about that. And he, he goes on and he says in, in chapter 5, the one who loves wealth won't be satisfied with his income and he will end life empty-handed just like he entered it. One of the things that I can remember my dad telling me from a young age is, son, at the end, you can't take it with you. Talking about the material things that we work for, right? You just can't take it with you. When you enter into the coffin... You enter in alone. Your stuff stays behind. And that's, that means that the toil you invest in amassing material wealth is a net loss. And anybody who has owned anything understands that. This fall was a very frustrating time in our home, uh, just talking major appliances. Back in August, my clothes dryer kept spitting off belts, so I'd buy a belt and put a new one on. Then I realized after belt three, oh, the pulley on the motor is chewing up the belt, so maybe I need to replace the pulley on the motor. So I finally did that with some rollers, and now that's working again. Then the dishwasher went out, 
And those are so smart that if you try to take apart the electronics, it's a death sentence for the dishwasher. So I, I got to replace that. And then my clothes, dry, clothes washer went on the fritz. It refused to spin out. Whew, ouch. And that thing wasn't that old. It was one of those smart washers. But the good news is a quick web search on a YouTube video told me that I could buy a $10 part, replace it, and get that back going again, which it did. So there's a win. And then at the end, um, the water heater went out. <laughs> Material things don't last. And the toil you invest in them is a net loss. And if you've ever owned a car, if you've ever owned a home, you know what the preacher is talking about. You can't bank on material things as providing any kind of meaning or any kind of lasting fruit in life. Because even if you are able somehow in this life to, to put together a big pile of wealth, at the end of your life, it doesn't go with you. It goes to somebody who didn't work for it. Bottom line is this. All the work that you put in to amass wealth and to acquire cash, time and use will break it down. You can't take it with you, so what's the point? That's what our preacher is frustrated over. Thirdly, he's frustrated because the toil invested in good deeds is like a crapshoot. He's saying living a good life isn't a guarantee either. He says in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15, a righteous man perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man prolongs his life in his evil doing. So living a good life doesn't even mean you get to live a long and fulfilling life. It's like a crapshoot because, Ecclesiastes 9, verses 2 and 3, death, time, and chance happen to all. Death, time, and chance happen to all. You may win, you may lose. Whether you do or whether you don't is not discernibly tied to how you have lived. And that is frustrating to the preacher. And that's because the effect that sin has on the details of life here on earth, under the sun, he says this as in a summary statement of verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14, he says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Doesn't pay back any lasting dividend, is what he's saying. He's saying the frustrating nature of life under the sun forces us to wonder that maybe we were made to find our gain, to find our meaning, to find our profit somewhere beyond the sun rather than under the sun. Is there more to life than just this frustrating, earthly experience? Is there hope that I can grasp and hang on to? And Paul speaks to this sort of thing in his first letter to the Corinthian church, verse 19 of chapter 15, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So ultimately we find our meaning and our benefit in life through relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is if the hope you receive through your relationship with him is for this life only, we're of all men to be pitied. Because trusting in Jesus does not guarantee you're going to have a fulfilling life here doesn't mean your life's going to get easy. In fact, it almost guarantees that your life will get more difficult. So therefore, we have to conclude that meaning and purpose and profit come in the next life, not necessarily this one. So in light of that, how does the preacher advise us to live? He, he brings us a few simple lessons. The first is this, 
Just be content to live simply. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, I perceived that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So the toil is not evil itself. He's saying enjoy your toil. It's God's gift for you. Enjoy the simple pleasures of life. Eat, drink, do good things. But don't count on them to provide your fulfillment. That's a gift from God. Does that sound like contentment? The New Testament idea of contentment is what the, the author of Ecclesiastes is teaching us here. Secondly, he's going to tell us to recognize the durability of what God does. Chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. So contrary to the, to the fleeting and the transitory nature of what we humans can do, what God does, he does stuff that lasts. So why would we not look around for where he's at work and join him in his work? Because the things that God does are the things that endure. They are the things that last. Why would we not invest our time, invest our talents, invest our treasure in joining God in his work? Because what he does is guaranteed to last. Thirdly, Kohelet will advise us in this way. He says, in light of the evidence, decide to live for what lasts. So in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, he's going to tell us, God is the one you must fear, so draw near to him and listen. Let your words be few. Pay your vow to him, which gives immeasurable value to our daily Bible reading and prayer times. God's the one you must fear, so draw near to him and listen. Close your mouth, <laughs> open your ears, and let him speak, because that is where meaning and value in life comes from. He is the one. Chapter 12, verse 1, he will tell us, remember your creator in the days of your youth. He's going to say, make this decision to follow the one true God before you get old. So I didn't used to live this way. I knew from the uh, young age that God was God. He was on the throne. He had a will and I was to submit my will to his will, and I knew I needed to make a decision to do that, and yet my perspective was, I'm going to put that off until like right before I die so that I can have a bunch of fun first. Not realizing that the fun I had in mind was amassing more pain. So when I hear the author say, remember your creator in the days of your youth, let me just add a hearty yes and amen to that. And if you have not remembered your creator yet, today is the day for you to remember your creator. Don't wait another day. You want purpose and life and health and meaning? You find it in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The author in chapter 12 will ultimately bring us to this conclusion. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. And keep his commandments. Why? For this is the whole duty of man. Why? For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. You may or may not see justice in this life, people, but you can trust that justice will be meted out at the day of Jesus Christ. So the fear... 
The exhortation is that we fear God and keep his commandments. In other words, Kohelet is saying obedience matters. In the end, he wants us to realize that there's more to life on this side under the sun. There's there's more, even when it doesn't feel like it, God is present and he's at work. And our challenge is to recognize where he's at work and to join him there. And there's no way to find a deeper, more satisfying fulfillment than in living a simple life under the sun, enjoying your work, enjoying good food, enjoying good drink, trusting that in the end, God is going to make everything right. And so we hear Kohelet's command to fear God and keep his commandments. And we're reminded of some of the commandments that Jesus has given us from his own mouth in the New Testament. He says, yeah, life in this world is hard. In fact, he says, in the world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to be faced with tribulation. You're going to be frustrated. Things aren't going to go the way you want them to go. But he says, take courage. I have overcome the world. And that's a good word for us today. And the author of Ecclesiastes says we're to to fear God and keep his commandments. And we hear Jesus give these commands in the center portion of John's gospel. He says, abide in my love. That's a command. And we say, wow, Jesus, that sounds amazing. How do I do that? And he gives us the answer in the next verse. He says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. So obedience matters. You want to abide in the love of Christ? Listen to and keep his commandments. That's how we abide in the love of Christ. And we say, but Lord, this is hard. Obedience is so hard. And he answers that question too. And he says, yeah, do it just as I have kept my father's commandments and have abided in his love. I have given you a beautiful model of what it looks like to abide in and keep the commandments of my father at great personal cost. It's like he looks us in the eye and he says, yeah, Father told me to take on flesh and to live a sinless life as your substitute, and I did. Then Father told me to lay my life down and to shed my blood on Calvary's cross as your substitute for your sin, and I did. Yeah, it's costly, but it's worth it. So we hear his command to abide in his love. We recognize that we abide in his love by keeping his commandments. And we recognize the great cost at which he has purchased our salvation. Giving of his body and the shedding of his blood. So today, church, we are going to remember the body and the blood of Christ by celebrating communion together. And at this point, I invite the elders and the servants to to bring forth the elements. And as we do, I just want to remind us that as we prepare to eat the wafer as a symbol of Jesus' body that he gave for us to purchase our salvation, as we take the cup of juice that's a symbol of his blood that he shed for us on Calvary's cross and making perfect payment for our sins, And we're reminded of the truth of the New Testament that tells us we are to celebrate this. And every time that we do, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, church, we're about to participate in communion together. And we need to do that in in a worthy manner. 
We're called to examine our hearts. And I want to remind you of one more command that Jesus gave us in the scriptures. This is through the Apostle John in his first letter, chapter 3, verse 23. He says, and this is my Father's commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. That is the commandment that is essential. You get this commandment right. You believe in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the other commandments will fall into place as the Holy Spirit empowers you to obey. And this meal we're about to celebrate today is a meal for people who have come to that decision. And if that's you, we invite you to celebrate this meal with joy. And if that is not yet you, we invite you to repent. And so, as the servants come forward and distribute the elements, just join me in prayer. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We acknowledge that unlike you, a holy and a righteous God, we are sinful, we are rebellious, and we confess that before you. Come into our life, provide forgiveness, Give us your Holy Spirit. Empower our obedience. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So as the elements pass, continue to search your heart. Look if there are sins that you have not yet confessed before him. Now would be a great time to do that. There's no better time than the present to... Lay down any sin that you've been clinging to. Close out the year 2023 with a clean heart. Start the year 2024 on a new mission, walking hand in hand with Jesus, pledging to go wherever he says to go, pledging to do whatever he says to do, pledging to speak to whoever he says to speak, to make disciples among wherever he would call you to make disciples. He's got a plan to use you to build his church. And he will thrive at using you and using me as we regularly take our inventory, as we regularly examine our hearts, as we regularly realize in the moment when we're sinning and we turn from it, That's what repentance is. We turn from our sin and we turn back toward Jesus. We run to Jesus when we are convicted of our sin rather than running from him because he stands with open arms ready to receive and ready to forgive all those who come to him by faith. He will never turn you away when you look to him in faith. So just take a minute or two And in the quiet, examine your heart.
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So to those of you who confessed your sins in Jesus' name, I proclaim to you in Jesus' name, you are forgiven. You can rise up and walk in the newness of life because of the body of Jesus Christ that he gave for you for the payment of your sin. And we remember that and we proclaim his death as we take the wafer. And because of this cup that represents his blood that he shed freely, willingly as our substitute, make a perfect payment for sin in the only currency acceptable by God, human blood. We remember the shed blood of Jesus, and as we do, we proclaim his death until he comes. So, Father, we thank you for making such perfect and lavish provision for us to be your people. You have been at work in our hearts You are at work around us. You have brought us here this morning. You have brought us through this process of searching and taking inventory and bringing conviction for the sins that we have yet to confess. And you brought us to that place where we were able to repent of them, confess them. And now you pronounce over us in the power of the Spirit that we are forgiven. And you willingly Give us your spirit to empower our obedience, knowing that in our obedience, that's how we abide in your love. And as we abide in your love, that's when we find ultimate meaning and life and reward on this side of glory and an eternity that is secure forever. So we thank you and we praise you. And it's with hearts blessed by forgiveness that we close out the year 2023 and look forward to the year 24. Lord, give us eyes to see. Be our vision. Help us to recognize where you're at work and to join you there in that work. We offer you ourselves for our own good, for your glory. In Jesus' matchless name, amen.